This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Principles, Life and Work, written by Ray Dalio in 2017. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel, find me on Spotify, or check out my website for downloads. Part 3. Work Principles for any group or organization to function well, its work principles must be aligned with its members' life principles. I don't mean that they must be aligned on everything, but I do mean that they have to be aligned on the most important things, like the mission they are on and how they will be with each other. If people in an organization feel that alignment, they will treasure their relationships and work together harmoniously. Its culture will permeate everything they do. If they don't, they will work for different, often conflicting goals and will be confused about how they should be with each other. For that reason, it pays for all organizations, companies, governments, foundations, schools, hospitals, and so on to spell out their principles and values clearly and explicitly and to operate by them consistently. Those principles and values aren't, aren't vague slogans like, the customer always comes first, or we should strive to be the best in our industry. But they should be a set of concrete directives that anyone can understand, get aligned on, and carry out. As we shift our attention from life principles to work principles, I will explain how we went about achieving these alignments at Bridgewater and how that affected our results. But first, I want to explain how I think about organizations. An organization is a machine consisting of two major parts, culture and people. Each influences the other because the people who make up an organization determine the kind of culture it has, and the culture of the organization determines the kind of people who fit in. A. A great organization has both great people and great culture. Companies that get progressively better over time have both. Nothing is more important or more difficult than to get the culture and people right. B. Great people have both great character and great capabilities. By great character, I mean they are radically truthful, radically transparent, and deeply committed to the mission of the organization. By great capabilities, I mean they have the abilities and skills to do their jobs excellently. People who have one without the other are dangerous and should be removed from the organization. People who have both are rare and should be treasured. C. Great cultures bring problems and disagreements to the surface and solve them well, and they love imagining and building great things that have not been built before. Doing that sustains their evolution. In our case, we do that by having an idea meritocracy that strives for meaningful work and meaningful relationships through radical truth and radical transparency. By meaningful work, I mean work that people are excited to get their heads into, and by meaningful relationships, I mean those in which there is genuine caring for each other, like an extended family. I find that these reinforce each other and that being radically truthful and radically transparent with each other makes both the work and the relationships go better. By constantly looking down on the machine, its managers can objectively compare the outcomes it produces with their goals. If those outcomes are consistent with the goals, then the machine is working effectively. If the outcomes are inconsistent with the goals, then something is wrong with either the design of the machine or the people who are a part of it, and the problem needs to be diagnosed so the machine can be modified. As laid out in Chapter 2 of Life Principles, this ideally happens in a five-step process of 1. Having clear goals 2. Identifying the problems preventing the goals from being achieved 3. Diagnosing what parts of the machine, i.e. people or designs, are not working well 
four, designing changes, and five, doing what is needed or executing. This is the fastest and most efficient way that an organization improves. I call the process of converting problems into progress looping, and how it happens through time is visualized in the diagrams in this book. In a first in the first, a problem occurs that takes you off track from your goals and makes things worse than you planned. If you identify the decline, diagnose the problems that caused it so as to get at their root causes, come up with new designs, and then push them through, the trajectory will loop back on itself and continue its upward ascent. If you don't identify the problem, design a suboptimal solution, or fail to push it through effectively, the decline will continue. A manager's ability to recognize when outcomes are inconsistent with goals and then modify designs and assemble people to rectify them makes all the difference in the world. The more often and more effectively a manager does this, the steeper the upward trajectory. As I explained in Life Principles, this is what I believe evolution looks like for all organisms and organizations. Having a culture and people that will evolve in this way is critical because the world changes quickly and in ways that can't possibly be anticipated. I'm sure you can think of a number of companies that failed to identify and address their problems on time and ended up in terminal decline, like BlackBerry or Palm, and a rare few that have consistently looped well. Most don't. For example, only six of the companies that 40 years ago made up the Dow Jones 30, which is about when Bridgewater started, are still in the Dow 30 today. Many of them, American Can, American Tobacco, Bethlehem Steel, General Foods, Inco, F.W. Woolworth, don't even exist. Some, like Sears Roebuck, Johns Manville, Eastman Kodak, are so different today as to be almost unrecognizable. And many of the standouts on the list today, like Apple or Cisco, were yet to be founded. The rare few that have been able to evolve well over the decades have been successful at that evolutionary looping process, which also is the process that has made Bridgewater progressively more successful for 40 years. That is the process I want to pass along to you. As I mentioned earlier, nothing is more important or more difficult than to get the culture and the people right. Whatever successes we've had at Bridgewater were the result of doing that well, and whatever failures were due to our not doing it adequately. That might sound odd because, as a global macroeconomic investor, one might think that, above all else, I had to get the economics and investments right, which is true. But to do that, I needed to get the people and the culture right first. And to inspire me to do what I, need, to do what I did, I needed to have meaningful work and meaningful relationships. As the entrepreneur and builder of Bridgewater, I naturally shaped the organization to be consistent with my values and principles. I went after what I wanted most, in the way that seemed most natural to me with the people I chose to be with, and we and Bridgewater were ev evolved together. If you had asked me what my objective was when I started out, I would have said it, it would to have fun working with the people that I like. Work was a game I played with passion, and I wanted to have a blast playing it with people I enjoyed and respected. I started Bridgewater out of my apartment with a pal I played rugby with who had no experience in the markets, and with a friend who we hired as our assistant. I certainly wasn't thinking about management at the time. Management seemed to me like something people in gray suits with slide presentations did. I never set out to manage, let alone to have principles about work and management. From reading Life Principles, you know that I liked to imagine and build out new, practical concepts that never existed before. 
I especially loved doing these things with people who were on the same mission with me. I treasured thoughtful disagreement with them as a way of learning and raising our odds of making good decisions, and I wanted all the people I worked with to be my partners rather than my employees. In a nutshell, I was looking for meaningful work and meaningful relationships. I quickly learned that the best way to do that was to have great partnerships with great people. To me, great partnerships come from sharing common values and interests, having similar approaches to pursuing them, and being reasonable with and having consideration for each other. At the same time, partners must be willing to hold each other to high standards and work through their disagreements. The main test of a great partnership is not whether the partners ever disagree. People in all healthy relationships disagree. But whether they can bring their disagreements to the surface and get through them well. Having clear processes for resolving disagreements efficiently and clearly is essential for business partnerships, marriages, and all other forms of partnership. My wanting these things attracted others who wanted the same things, which drove how we shaped Bridgewater together. When there were five of us, it was totally different than when there were 50 of us, which was totally different than it was when there were 500 and 1,000 and so on. As we grew, at most everything changed beyond recognition except for our core values and principles. When Bridgewater was still a small company, the principles by which we operated were more implicit than explicit. But as more and more new people came in, I couldn't take for granted that they would understand and preserve them. I realized that I needed to write our principles out explicitly and explain the logic behind them. I remember the precise moment when this shift occurred. It was when the number of people at Bridgewater passed 67. Up until then, I had personally chosen each employee's holiday gift and written them a lengthy personalized card, but trying to do it that year broke my back. From that point on, an increasing number of people came in who didn't work closely with me, so I couldn't assume they would understand where I was coming from or what I was striving to create, which was an idea meritocracy built on tough love. Tough love is effective for achieving both great work and great relationships. To give you an idea of what I mean by tough love, think of, think of Vince Lombardi, who for me person, personified it. When I was 10 years old until I was 18, Lombardi was head coach of the Green Bay Packers. With limited resources, he led his team to five NFL championships. He won two NFL Coach of the Year awards, and many still call him the best coach of all time. Lombardi loved his players, and he pushed them to be great. I admired and still admire how uncompromising his standards were. His players, their fans, and he himself all benefited from his approach. I wish that Lombardi had written out his principles for me and others to read. A. In order to be great, one cannot compromise the uncompromisable. Yet I see people doing it all the time usually to avoid making others or themselves feel uncomfortable, which is not just backwards but counterproductive. Putting comfort ahead of success produces worse results for everyone. I both loved the people I worked with and pushed them to be great, and I expected them to do the same with me. From the very beginning, I felt that the people I worked with at Bridgewater were a part of my extended family. When they or members of their families got sick, I put them in touch with my personal doctor to make sure that they were well taken care of. I invited all of them to stay at my house in Vermont on weekends and loved it when they took me up on it. I celebrated their marriages and the births of their children and mourned the losses of their loved ones. But to be clear, this was no love fest. We were tough on each other too, so we could all be as great as we could be. I learned that the more caring we gave each other, the tougher we could be on each other. 
and the tougher we were on each other, the better we performed and the more rewards there were for us to share. This cycle was self-reinforcing. I found that operating this way made the lows less low and the highs higher. I even made the bad times better than the good ones in some important ways. Think about some of your toughest experiences in life. I bet it is as true for you as it has been for me that going through them with the people you cared about, who cared about you, and who were working as hard as you were for the same mission was incredibly rewarding. As hard as they were, we look back on some of these challenging times as our finest moments. For most people, being part of a great community on a shared mission is even more rewarding than money. Numerous studies have shown there is little or no correlation between one's happiness and the amount of money one accumulates, yet there is a strong correlation between one's happiness and the quality of one's relationships. I laid this out in a memo at Bridgewater in 1996. Quote, Bridgewater is not about plodding along at some kind of moderate standard. It is about working like hell to achieve a standard that is extraordinarily high, and then getting the satisfaction that comes along with that sort of super achievement. Our overriding objective is excellence, or more precisely, constant improvement, a superb and constantly improving company in all respects. Conflict in the pursuit of excellence is a terrific thing. There should be no hierarchy based on age or seniority. Power should lie in the reasoning, not the position of the individual. The best ideas win no matter where they come from. Criticism by oneself and by others is an essential ingredient in the improvement process, yet if handled correctly, sorry, if handled incorrectly can be destructive. It should be handled objectively. There should be no hierarchy in the giving or receiving of criticism. Teamwork and team spirit are essential, including intolerance of substandard performance. This is referring to, one, one's recognition of the responsibilities one has to help the team achieve its common goals, and two, the willingness to help others work within a group toward those common goals. Our fates are intertwined. One should know that others can be relied upon to help. As a corollary, substandard performance cannot be tolerated anywhere because it would hurt everyone everywhere. Long-term relationships are both A, intrinsically gratifying, and B, efficient and should be intentionally built. Turnover requires retraining and therefore creates setbacks. Money is a byproduct of excellence, not a goal. Our overriding objective is excellence and constant improvement at Bridgewater. To be clear, this is not to make lots of money. The natural extension of this is not that you should be happy with a little bit of money. On the contrary, you should expect to make a lot. If we operate consistently with this philosophy, we should be productive and the company should do well financially. There is comparatively little age and seniority-based hierarchy. Each person at Bridgewater should act like an owner, responsible for operating in this way and for holding others accountable to operate in this way. A believability-weighted idea meritocracy is the best system for making effective decisions. Unlike Lombardi, whose success depended on having his players follow instructions, I needed my players to be independent thinkers who could bang around their different points of view and reach better conclusions than any one of us could come up with on our own. I needed to create an environment in which everyone had the right and the responsibility to make sense of things for themselves and to fight openly for what they think is best, and where the best thinking won out. I needed a real idea meritocracy, not some theoretical version of one. That's because an idea meritocracy, i.e. a system that brings together smart, independent thinkers and has them productively disagree to come up with the best collective 
dis- thinking and resolve their disagreements in a believability-weighted way will outperform any other decision-making system. Our idea meritocratic system evolved over the decades. At first, we just argued like hell with each other about what was best and by thrashing through our disagreement, came up with better paths than if we had made our decisions individually. But as Bridgewater grew and our range of disagreements and needs to resolve them changed, we became more explicit in how this idea meritocracy would work. We needed a system that could both effectively weigh the believability of different people to come to the best decisions and do that in a way that was obviously fair. Everyone would recognize it as such. I knew that without such a system, we would lose both the best thinking and the best thinkers, and I'd be stuck with either kiss-asses or subversives who kept their disagreements and hidden resentments to themselves. For all this to work, I believed and still believe that we need to be radically truthful and radically transparent with one another. Radical Truth and Radical Transparency By radical truth, I mean not filtering one's thoughts and one's questions, especially the critical ones. If we don't talk and talk openly about our issues and have paths for working through them, we won't have partners who collectively own our outcomes. By radical transparency, I mean giving most everyone the ability to see most everything. To give people anything less than total transparency would make them vulnerable to others' spin and deny them the ability to figure things out for themselves. Radical transparency reduces harmful office politics and the risks of bad behavior, because bad behavior is more likely to take place behind closed doors than out in the open. Some people have called this way of operating radical straightforwardness. I knew that if radical truth and radical transparency did not apply across the board, we would develop two classes of people at the company, those with power who are in the know and those who aren't. So I pushed them both to their limits. To me, a pervasive idea meritocracy equals radical truth plus radical transparency plus believability-weighted decision-making. From a small group of people arguing informally about what's true and what to do about it, we developed approaches, technologies, and tools over the last 40 years that have taken us to a whole other level, which has been eye-opening and invaluable in ways that you can read about in the tools chapter at the end of this book. We have always been unwavering in providing this environment, and we let the people who didn't like it self-elect themselves out of the company. By being radically truthful and radically transparent, we could see that we all have terribly incomplete and or distorted perspectives. This is not unique to Bridgewater. You would recognize the same thing if you could see into the heads of the people around you. As explained in the chapter, understand that people are wired very differently, people tend to see the same situations in dramatically different ways, depending on how their brains are wired. Seeing this will help you evolve. At first, most people remain stuck in their own heads, stubbornly clinging to the idea that their views are best, and that something is wrong with other people who don't see things their way. But when they repeatedly face the questions, how do you know that you're not the wrong one? And what process would you use to draw upon different perspectives to make the best decisions? They are forced to confront their own believability and see things through others' eyes as well as their own. This shift in perspective is what produces great collective decision-making. Ideally, this takes place in an open-source way, with the best ideas flowing freely, living, dying, and producing rapid evolution based on their merits. Most people initially find this process very uncomfortable. 
While most appreciate it intellectually, they typically are challenged by it emotionally because it requires them to separate themselves from their ego's attachment to being right and try to see what they have a hard time seeing. A small minority get it and love it from the start. A slightly larger minority cannot stand it and leave the company, and the majority stick with it, get better at it with time, and eventually wouldn't want to operate in any other way. While operating this way might sound difficult and inefficient, it is actually extremely efficient. In fact, it is much harder and much less efficient to work in an organization in which most people don't know what their colleagues are really thinking. Also, when people can't be totally open, they cannot be themselves. As Harvard developmental psychologist Bob Kagan, who has studied Bridgewater, likes to say, in most companies people are doing their jobs, or are doing two jo jobs, their actual job and the job of managing others' impressions of how they're doing their job. For us, that is terrible. We found that bringing everything to the surface, one, removes the need to try to look good, and two, eliminates time required to guess what people are thinking. In doing so, it, it creates more meaningful work and more meaningful relationships. Here are the forces behind Bridgewater's self-reinforcing evolutionary spiral. 1. We went from one independent thinker who wanted to achieve audacious goals to a group of independent thinkers who wanted to achieve audacious goals. 2. To enable these independent thinkers to have effective collective decision-making, we created an idea meritocracy based on principles that ensured we would be radically honest and transparent with each other, have thoughtful disagreements, and have idea meritocratic ways of getting past our disagreements to make decisions. 3. We recorded these decision-making principles on paper and later encoded them into the computer and made our decisions based upon them. 4. This produced our successes and failures, which produced more learnings, which were written into more principles, that were then systemized and acted upon. 5. This process resulted in excellent work and excellent relationships that led us to having well-rewarded and happy employees and clients. 6. That led us to be able to bring in more audacious independent thinkers with more audacious goals to strengthen this self-reinforcing upward spiral. We did that over and over again, which produced the evolutionary looping behind Bridgewater's 40-plus years of success. This really works. You don't have to take my word for it. There are two ways you can evaluate the likelihood that this approach and the principles that follow from it are as powerful as I believe they are. You can, one, look at the results they produced, and two, look at the logic behind them. As for the results, like the Lombardis and the Packers, our track record speaks for itself. We consistently got better over 40 years, going from my two-bedroom apartment to becoming the fifth most important private company in the U.S., according to Fortune, and the world's largest hedge fund, making more total money for our clients than any other hedge fund in history. We have received over 100 industry awards, and I personally earned three Lifetime Achievement Awards, not to mention remarkable financial and psychological rewards, and most importantly, amazing relationships. But even more important than these results is the underlying cause-effect logic behind these principles, which came before the results. Over 40 years ago, this way of being was a controversial, untested theory that nevertheless seemed illogical to me. I will explain this logic to you in the pages that follow. That way, you can address it for yourself. There's no doubt that our approach is very different. Some people have even described Bridgewater as a cult. The truth is that Bridgewater succeeds because it, because it is the opposite of a cult. 
The essential difference between a culture of people with shared values, which is a great thing, and a cult, which is a terrible thing, is the extent to which there is independent thinking. Cults demand unquestioning obedience. Thinking for yourself and challenging each other's ideas is anti-cult behavior, and that is the essence of what we do at Bridgewater. Who's crazy? Some people say that our approach is crazy, but think about it. Which approach do you think is crazy and which one is sensible? One where people are truthful and transparent, or one in which most people keep their real thoughts hidden? One where problems, mistakes, and weaknesses and disagreements are brought to the surface and thoughtfully discussed, or one in which they are not forthrightly brought to the surface and discussed? One in which the right to criticize is non-hierarchical, or one in which it primarily comes from the top down? One in which objective pictures of what people are like are derived through lots of data and broad triangulations of people, or one in which evaluations of people are more arbitrary? One in which the organization pursues very high standards for achieving both meaningful work and meaningful relationships, or one in which work quality and relationship quality are not equally valued or the standards aren't as high. Which kind of organization do you think will enable better development for the people who work there, will foster deeper relationships between them, and produce better results? Which approach would you prefer to see the leaders and organizations that you deal with follow? Which way of being would you prefer the people who run our government to follow? My bet is that after reading this book, you will agree that our way of operating is far more sensible than conventional ways of operating. But remember that my most pr fundamental principle is that you have to think for yourself. Why I wrote this book and how you can get the most out of it. If you are inside Bridgewater, I am passing these principles on in my own words so that you can see the dream and approach through my eyes. Bridgewater will evolve from where it is now based on what you and others in the next generation of leadership want and how you go about getting it. This book is intended to help you. How you use it is up to you. Whether or not this culture continues is up to you and those who succeed me in the leadership role. It is my responsibility to not be attached to Bridgewater being the way I would want it to be. It is most important that you and others who succeed me make your own independent choices. Like a parent with adult children, I want you all to be strong, independent thinkers who will do well without me. I have done my best to bring you to this point. Now is the time for you to step up and for me to fade away. If you are outside Bridgewater and thinking about how these principles might apply to your organization, this book is meant to prompt your thinking, not to give you an exact formula to follow. You don't have to adopt all or any of my principles, do I do, though I do recommend that you consider them. Many people who run other organizations have, adopt, have adopted some of these principles, modified others, and rejected many. Whatever you want to do with them is fine with me. These principles provide a framework you can modify to suit your needs. Maybe you will pursue the same goal, and maybe you won't. Chances are that, in either case, you will collect some valuable stuff. If you share my goal of having your organization be a real idea meritocracy, I believe this book will be invaluable for you because I'm told that no organization has thought through or pushed the concepts of how to make a real idea meritocracy as far as Bridgewater. If doing that is important to you and you pursue it with unwav unwavering determination, you will encounter your own barriers, you will find your own ways around them, and you will get there, even if imperfectly. 
While these principles are good general rules, it's important to remember that every rule has exceptions, and that no set of rules can ever substitute for common sense. Think of these principles as being like a GPS. A GPS helps you get where you're going, but if you follow it blindly off a bridge, well, that would be your fault, not the GPS. And just as a GPS that gives bad directions can be fixed by updating its software, it is important to raise and discuss exceptions to the principles as they occur so that they can evolve and improve over time. No matter what path you choose to follow, your organization is a machine made up of culture and people that will interact to produce outcomes, and those outcomes will provide feedback about how well your organization is working. Learning from this feedback should lead you to modify the culture and the people so your organizational machine improves. This dynamic is so important that I've organized work principles around it in three sections. First, to get the culture right, to get the people, then to get the people right, and then to build and evolve your machine. Each chapter within these sections begins with a higher level principle. Reading these will give you a good sense of the main concepts in each chapter. Under these higher level principles, there are a number of supporting principles built around the many different types of decisions that need to be made. These principles are meant for reference. Though you might want to skim through them, I, I recommend using them as one would use an encyclopedia or search engine to answer a specific question. For example, if you have to fire or transfer someone, you should use the table of principles and go to the section of principles about that. To make this easier, at Bridgewater, we created a tool called The Coach that allows people to type in their particular issue and find the appropriate principles to help them with it. I will soon be making the tool available to the public, along with many of the other management tools you'll read about in the final section of the book. My main objective is not to sell you on these principles, but to share the most valuable lessons I've learned over my more than 40-year journey. My goal is to get you to think hard about the tough trade-offs that you will face in many types of situations. By thinking about the trade-offs behind the principles, you will be able to decide for yourself which principles are best for you. This brings me to my most fundamental work principle. Make your passion and your work one and the same and do it with the people you want to be with. Work is either one, a job you do to earn the money to pay for the life you want to have, or two, what you do to achieve your mission or some mix of the two. I urge you to make it as much of the second as possible, but recognizing the value of the first. If you do that, most everything will go better than if you don't. Work principles is written for those for whom work is primarily the game that you play to follow your passion and achieve your mission. To get the culture right, you have to work in a culture that suits you. That's fundamental to your happiness and your effectiveness. You also must work in a culture that is effective in producing great outcomes because if you don't, you won't get the psychic and material rewards that keep you motivated. In this section on culture, I will share my thoughts on how to match your culture to your needs, and I will explain the type of culture that I wanted and that has worked so well for me, an idea meritocracy. In chapter one of part three, I explain what an idea meritocracy looks like and explore why radical truth and radical transparency are essential for it to work well. Being radically truthful and radically transparent are probably the most difficult principles to internalize because they are so different from what most, most people are used to. Because this way of being is frequently misunderstood, I tried especially hard to be crystal clear in conveying why we operate this way and how it works in practice. 
in chapter two, we will turn our attention to why and how to build a culture that fosters meaningful relationships. Besides being rewarding themselves, meaningful relationships enable the radical truth and transparency that allow us to hold each other accountable for producing excellence. I believe that great cultures, like great people, recognize that making mistakes is part of the process of learning, and that continuous learning is what allows an organization to evolve successfully over time. In Chapter 3, we will explore the principles for doing that well. Of course, an idea meritocracy is based on the belief that pulling people's thinking together and stress testing it produces better outcomes than when people keep their disparate thoughts in their own heads. Chapter 4 contains principles for getting in sync well. Knowing how to have thoughtful disagreements is key. Idea meritocracies carefully weigh the merits of its members' opinions. Since many opinions are bad and virtually everyone is confident that theirs are good, the process of being able to sort through them well is important to understand. Chapter 5 explains our system for believability-weighted decision-making. Since disagreements sometimes remain even after decisions are made, one also needs principles for resolving them that are clearly communicated, constantly, consistently adhered to, and universally recognized as fair. These I go over in Chapter 6. Make your idea meritocracy work in a way that suits you. While all of what you read here may seem challenging and complicated in practice, if you believe as I do that there is no better way to make decisions than to have believable people open-mindedly and assertively surface, explore, and resolve their differences, then you will figure out what it takes to operate that way. If an idea meritocracy does not work well, the fault doesn't lie in the concept, it lies in people not valuing it enough to make sure that it works. If you take nothing else away from this book, you owe it to yourself to see what it's like to experience an idea meritocracy. If it makes sense to you, I hope that you will take the plunge. It won't take long for you to understand what a radical difference it will make to your work and your relationships. To sum it up, to have an idea meritocracy, one, put your honest thoughts on the, thoughts on the table, two, have thoughtful disagreement, and three, abide by agreed-upon ways of getting past disagreement.